Hello listeners, you're listening to Law Talk, part of the Law and Legends Storytelling Podcast series. In part two, you learned about the mysterious lore of porridge wands or spurtles and the medieval mythology of the bird of paradise, or the parrot to you and me. In part three of Lisa and Lady Isabel, I sit down with a friend and follower of the podcast, Lisa Bellella. Lisa is originally from New York in the United States. She crossed the pond to the UK to pursue a doctorate in English literature at the University of Leeds, where she works on the history of emotions in class narratives of the 1830s. Lisa has been a supporter of the podcast right from the beginning, giving us early feedback on episodes, but is new to the world of folklore and storytelling in general. In this part of Law Talk, Lisa tells us what it's like to listen to stories on the podcast versus live storytelling events, and gives us her thoughts on the female characters in our episodes and how the agency of women is represented in traditional folklore narratives. Welcome to the studio, Lisa. Um, although you do live upstairs. That's so. right. <laughs> I was going to say I'm like in there on the ground floor, but really I live on the top floor. So. You haven't actually flown across from America. <laughs> just, for the, just for this podcast. Yes. Get on my level, fans. <laughs> so, yeah, just tell me a bit about what you've been enjoying about the series so far. Okay, so I know that we were saying we might talk about the Lady Isabel episode later, so I won't get too much into that now, but that ha- that was my favourite episode that you'd done so far until the <laughs> Halloween episodes came out, because... I love Halloween. I love everything <laughs> about Halloween. And you can't possibly top like spooky, scary stories that are also about Halloween. <laughs> so I was really, really excited for those. And I really liked, um, I liked all of them. And um, I just listened to the wizard episode last night, but I really particularly like Jack of the Lantern. I feel like I learned stuff, but also <laughs> it was very good to hear. And I was, well, I was also lucky because I heard you do it the first time live before it was actually out, released to the public. Yeah. Um, which so I thought that is, was awesome. How is that different hearing it live? Ah, well, it's it's much, like, it's a much more visceral experience, isn't it? So you're standing in the room. Mm you know, and moving around and, uh, you know, gesturing and you're doing all the voices in real time. And so you don't have, you know, it's a, it can be a little bit of a trade-off. It depends because you don't have like your, um, any of your background music that you use in the podcast, for example. And off, often I listen to it when I'm on a train or something or, or walking somewhere in town. So it's that little bit like, there's a little bit of a disconnect between what's going on in your head, you know, with the podcast and like actually just needing to walk down the street in <laughs> real time. But um, yeah, when you're sit- sat there listening to the story, you can give it your full undivided attention and it's just that much more immersive, really. And, you know, we had the, the lights dimmed and there was a fire and casting this eerie orange light. Um, it was, yeah, it was very cool. It was very good. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of fun telling them live, and um, we recorded me and Seb rehearsing for the version of King Orphea that we did at Stanington Story Festival, so listeners will be able to hear a bit more of what a 
like an actual storytelling performance sounds like. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. That's really cool. And I had um, I had been to Sheffield Storyboard with you once before, I think, and that was similar. It had a bunch of different people kind of getting up and telling stories and, uh, you know, you don't necessarily know what to expect going into it. It's a little bit like the week-to-week podcasts. I know you give a little bit of a preview about what the story is going to be usually, but... Um, you know, if you're like me and you're not very familiar with folklore, especially not British folklore, it is a little bit of a surprise every week. And yeah, um, StoryForge was like that. People are just going to get up and tell you something. You don't necessarily have a program in advance. You're not picking and choosing like, oh, I think I'll be interested in this, so I won't give that a try. And it's much more, um, yeah, you kind of get to know things in a, a much more egalitarian way, <laughs> I think. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right. Well, um, yeah. So you mentioned Lazy Isabel. Yes. And I think we were having a conversation about writing and performing female characters in a lot of these old tales where, because of the times, you know, where it's come from, those roles can be small or problematic in lots of different ways. And you said that you wish we talked about that a little bit more on the episode. Yeah. <laughs> Subsequently, we've then actually, because you you listened to uh, Lady Isabel quite early on as sort of a preview when we were sort of testing the podcast out, when we actually advertised the Lady Isabel episode, I, I think I must have remembered our conversation and <laughs> thought that was what me and Seb actually talked about. One of the trailers that I advertised has said, Rick and Seb discuss the problem of uh, representing women in in traditional things. And then I listened back to it at some point and I was like, oh, we actually don't do that. And that's what what you'd say. (laughs) But we'd already got a comment after I released that from somebody online quite pointedly saying, is it only going to be two guys talking about how to represent women? And I sort of said, "Uh, yeah, unfortunately. Uh, (laughs) But we can now rectify both of those mistakes <laughs> in one fell swoop. I, I'm happy to talk about my thoughts about how I approach that problem as a male storyteller. Sure. Uh, but did you want to sort of start off by talking about your impressions of <laughs> Lady Isabel and the other women in the sure. series? Yeah. Um, so, firstly... I'm glad that I made that big of an impression on you when we first talked. Um, but secondly, yeah, so I really liked I really liked the Lady Isabel story. And you're right, I did hear it um, for the first time ages ago. Now, it, you know, it must, must be like four or five months ago now, the first time I heard it. Um, and so I remember immediately being struck by things that... I, I, can, I can remember asking you at the time whether or not they were conscious choices that you'd made. Um, so, for example, uh, in the beginning when the Blue Knight arrives and they kind of have this back and forth, this trading of riddles. Mm-hmm. And I can remember the first thing that I noticed in that was he, he says to her, oh, you know, spin me some clothes, dye me some clothes, wash me a cloak. Um can you sew this? Can you, you know, and I remember thinking that they were all very womanly tasks that he assigns her, which of course makes sense. But what I thought was really great is that she counters with these own riddles, like, okay, well, are you going to go plow the fields then? You know, are you going to come back with, with riches for me? Um, 
And I thought that seemed to me like uh, that kind of glimmer of agency that you don't get, you know, so you say like in these, they're older tales or they're derived from something older, right? Um, and so you really do kind of need to latch on to these, these uh, moments, right? Where there's something more going on for these women characters that you could see that uh, ways that they're maybe subverting expectations, maybe that they're even too big for the storyteller in some ways, you know, you really have to, sometimes you have to look really hard for it, which I guess this leads me into a good question for you. How do you change or enlarge these parts for women? Um, what do you normally find when you look at source material and are you conscious of making more space for representing women? Yeah, I would say that's always something that's on my mind when I'm looking at these tales. Doing it can be difficult sometimes, and sometimes you make the changes and you feel like, well, that's improved it. Right. <laughs> but how far does it actually take you? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, one of the reasons that I chose the Lady Isabel tale, which I really liked, it was precisely because it was one of very few narratives in which... Uh, a female character is the protagonist mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. gains the upper hand. I think me and Seb talked about the fact that the the riddles are part of this sort of some of these courtship songs, mm -hmm. which are usually based around an interaction with an elf knight or the devil or or a stranger from another land. Are usually about yes, the maiden using her agency to protect her virginity, right? But occasionally. The lady's sexual agency. In the La Lady Isabel tale itself, one problem emerged out of the way that I rewrote it slightly because I added this motif of the three castles um, and her sort of enchanting the knight to sleep right. every single time. I uh, borrowed that from another folk tale. And I thought that added flesh to the story, but I then had to explain why she didn't run, run away, away. <laughs> right. or kill him. Um, and so the idea sort of that I was trying to play with was, okay, so you, you're talking about women in these dangerous circumstances, you know, with a potential killer or rapist or, or any of those things. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the... Um, brought in the magical element of that he is using a charm on her but then also tried to relate it possibly to, you know, the, the very real phenomenon that women are attracted to and do stay with dangerous men sometimes. Right. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, people find it hard to leave abusive relationships and that kind of thing. Right. So there was sort of a slight idea that maybe the, the charming, the, the charm is kind of like a metaphor for that. Um, his charm, his silver yes, lasso, the, for the, a better... The belt that he yeah. puts onto her. Yeah, it, it, it creates a slight problem in the sense that because the way that she then escapes at the end of the tale is that she removes the belt because he's given her permission to, and that, that works as a magical device. Right. And makes the tale that I've told make sense, but I'm not sure... 
it doesn't really support her agency terribly well, apart right. from the fact that as soon as she removes it, she throws him in the ocean. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so there's a bit of a problem there, but I was trying to do something with it. And of course, the the belt is actually something that I think it is in one of the versions of the folktale, but it's not in a lot of them. And in most, in, in a lot of versions, they go straight to the sea. There isn't the three other castles and she just, just throw them straight in anyway. So in some ways, the actual <laughs> original folktale may be... It's stronger than than the version that I've created yeah. there. Well, I'm 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 gonna hit you with some possible other interpretations. Okay. We can yeah. we can decide if we like them later or not. But um, as you were speaking about um, the potential for sexual agency in in terms of um, these courtship riddles or courtship songs, and then how how this um, relationship for lack of a better <laughs> way to term that, goes on between the two. I just reminded me, actually, um, and you might need to correct me on this because I haven't thought about uh, kind of Old Testament Bible stories in a long time, but doesn't doesn't Delilah sleep with Samson and he falls asleep, allowing all his hair to get cut off and mm. he loses all his strength? Is that... That, that's what happens, yeah. right? Yeah. I know that some of these stories will definitely predate that, but I'm just trying to establish that there's definitely a theme <laughs> in um, kind of mm, literature at large, so including folklore of all kinds of women employing their sexuality for their own ends and to the detriment of men. And so, and hmm. of course, in the Bible story, it's it's really bad for Samson. And I guess it does end really badly for the Blue Knight too, but we don't like him, so it's fine. <laughs> um, so that could just, that's also another way to read her charms, right? So they're objects in your story. There's the, the comb, right? She gets a comb. Yeah, the silver comb, the golden um, pin. Yes, the silver comb, the golden pin, um, and can they be, or should they be, or is it possible even for them to be viewed as something more than just objects? Mm. Um, nobody can see me doing some like big eyes and winking, <laughs> but that's kind of that's kind of one possibility. Um, and also, and we spoke about this a little bit at the time too, when the. Um, episode hadn't come out yet um but we were talking about how sexually charged was the eventual death of the blue knight scene oh yes yeah so because i added the element of removing the belt mm -hmm. uh and removing some clothes which again is something that doesn't happen in the original ballad as soon as he turns around she catches around the waist and chucks him into the water whereas mine sort of required her to sort of take part in the command to undress slightly mm -hmm. in order to accomplish the um uh the the conceit of removing the belt uh yes and depending on how you listen to it and how it was edited mm -hmm. um, it could sound a little bit like uh lady isabel was actually naked at the end yeah <laughs> I asked you, did, did did it sound like that 
Yeah. Um, and you said it was ambiguous. Yeah, I, yeah, I thought it was <laughs> ambiguous. I mean, when I first listened to it and I pictured the scene happening in my head, I did not think that she was nude and just kicking him into the sea. But I did envision a, like, this is Sparta, kick into the sea. So that was very satisfying from my perspective. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's ambiguous. And I think that that's good uh, in that way. I think that, you know... Sometimes in trying to account for all these things, like this is the problem that, that you have run into, is in trying to account for everything, you start leaving yourself up open to unforeseen consequences and you start accidentally kind of tamping down on the agency of, of, um, of characters. You know, it's, sometimes it's better to let that be, <laughs> I think, you know, and leave it, leave it open-ended. Yeah, no, there's there's definitely, especially the first version we did, it, it did seem to kind of suggest that she was naked. Right. Seb um, <laughs> um, <laughs> said he liked, actually liked the idea that it seemed almost quite victorious that she would uh, march up from the beach uh, with no clothes on and then, because she demands to be clothed in all of his fine robes and things. Oh, yeah. And in some ways she said, oh, that's, that's quite a nice image. But you know the the we're already in the situation of where it's essentially a uh you know there are lots of murder ballads and you know one of the problems that is talked about is sort of the fetishization of women in danger and mm-hmm. sexualizing um uh sort of women in peril so yeah it kind of tried to bend it away from that suggestion yeah <laughs> yeah it's true um, though but at that moment is she She's no longer a woman in danger, isn't she? A woman in victory. It's very Amazonian in its way, you know. The yes, um, yes, yeah. and and I I know some people totally go for that idea. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, then yeah. you get into the the multiplicity of feminisms. And the, that's, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's well, that's what it comes down to, isn't it? Is that um, and this kind of speaks to some of the discussion that you had at the time with Seb, um, that these stories, as much as they're an interpretation of things in the past, um, in telling them, we're always reinterpreting our own moment. Mm. Always. You know, however consciously or unconsciously that is, um, that is very much part of what is happening. So even the fact that you're sitting here and trying to think about the way that you're portraying women and not just being like, well, women are dumb and so, so (laughs) this is what they do, isn't it? (laughs) Um... So that in itself shows how far that we have come as a society that somebody would sit and think about this before they do it. Um. Yeah, it, it's it's difficult sometimes to know how to approach it because the status of myth and legend as kind of like adjacent to history but not actually being mm-hmm. history has you constantly asking the question of like, should I change this? Mm-hmm. How much should I change this? So um, one strategy that I take sometimes is to take what's already there and change it subtly or kind of like recenter the tale mm-hmm. so you know the other one that I worked very hard to make the female characters the main protagonists was the lady worm yes um, and you know you can argue that the brother fulfills the heroic role there of coming and rescuing her at the end mm-hmm. um but that's why I I did make a change in introducing 
a backstory where uh, the, the fairy queen uh, who ends up marrying the uh, the king, they already know her in their childhood and sort of establishing that relationship between them. Right, yeah. And then not only that, I also introduced a little girl as kind of like a witness. Right. And she's told the first part of the story by a woman who turns out to be the queen. So... You know, there's uh, there's a there's a woman, there's a girl as a witness. The story is being told by a woman, primarily about another woman, and right. even though Child Wind comes in to do his uh, sort of uh, archetypical thing, because he is reminded by the girl in my version to stop and think and listen. Yeah. And, and, it, and it stops being about a, a knight coming and slaying a dragon. Right. And... <laughs> it, it works for him because he, he learns to listen to women, right? <laughs> that, that, that's the moral, right? The dragon is just part of it. <laughs> um, Chariot, Chariot of Zena. Yes. Is one. Or what, what did you think about that one? Uh, unfortunately, Seb's not here to, I know. to present his I mean... version. But that's, uh... <laughs> we'll just have to talk about it. <laughs> he can hear it online like everyone else. Um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. I just listened to that um, a few days ago, actually, because I'm listening to them all out of order, <laughs> like skipping around, because um, they're, as we've said, there are some I've heard before. Um, and so I just listened to that a few days ago, and um, yeah, I liked it. It was interesting uh, because I it's like um, a little bit typical, like the 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 woman who didn't listen, right? That's that's and there there's the moral right there, right? You know, yeah, she does yeah. she does not listen, she does not obey, and she's sent home. She's forced home. So before this, she um, she's found. I guess by Robin, um, the elven. We come to find out elven. the elfish lord. Yeah, yeah. lord, and um, and she's kind of this very chaste but lover figure for him. Right, they share some kisses and stuff, and um, and she takes care of the the child. Right, so she kind of fulfills this very wife role, and she's almost like starstruck by that, you know, and she comes to this, this elven kingdom more or less. Um, and is enchanted by that until, right. She disobeys. She puts the ointment in her eyes. She sees things as they are. She sees that Robin has an elfish lover. Right. Mm. Um, and she's sent home. Um, and, we don't know what happens to her after that, right? And so, is this is this a fallen woman story, right? Mm. What what is what is the ointment? I mean, this is <laughs> this is me. This is me. Um, yeah, just I'm just gonna read sex into everything. <laughs> but but you know, what is it? What does she see? What does she find out? You know, she, um, or what is seeing in this context, you know, um, what, what is knowledge? What kind of knowledge is it? It's forbidden knowledge. What is forbidden knowledge, you know, um, for a, a chaste girl? Um, and of course it's her jealousy, right? That, um, outs her because, you know, otherwise Robin may not have known that she disobeyed. Right. Mm. So the fact that she, she kind of, uh, brings this to him and says, 
I saw you with another woman. (laughs) (laughs) And she's chucked out, right? So it's okay for men or, you know, elfish men, maybe. Um, (laughs) But not for her. And then she's sent home. And what? Is she now damaged goods? We'll never know because the story stopped there. It's just... Well, um, (laughs) I suppose, I I don't know about four other men, but... It definitely in the story. The, the story ends definitely suggesting that she is damaged because it says she 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 wanders forever. Yeah, like looking for it again. Yeah. Have you? This is going to be a tangent. Have you ever read the Goblin Market by uh, Christina Rossetti? It's a kind of long form poem. Um, I have skimmed it. Yeah. So. <laughs> so. Just to summarize quickly, right? There are these two women. They live on the edge of a forest. I think. And there are goblins selling fruit that they can hear them, the goblins calling, selling the fruit, selling the fruit. But you can't go to the goblin market. You can't buy the forbidden fruit. Well, one girl does. And guess what? She ends up pregnant. Hmm. <laughs> I wonder what... Well, she doesn't end up pregnant, actually. That's the, that's the horrible thing is that she wants to get pregnant. As, as fallen women do, they want to be, become pregnant. So the men are forced to stay with them. So they right. have this... Um, and it's, it reminded me very much of that because at the end, uh, she, the, the one who does sleep with the, <laughs> sleep with the goblins, um, can't hear their call anymore mm-hmm. and only her friend can hear the call. And that, that reminded me very much of the, the wandering, the wandering loss and never finding yeah, that, yeah. uh, you know, also kind of recalls, um, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, is it Susan? What's her second name? Pev. Pev. Pe- I don't know. Pences or, or something. Yeah. How uh, she reaches sexual maturity and puts some lipstick on and can never go back to Narnia. That's it. Um, and it's uh, that's it. Yeah. Frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> that's it. Um, yeah. Uh, like I say, it's uh, it's a bit awkward not having set here. I think it's fair to say that that was a story that. He wanted to tell because of the various folkloric elements and like you said, yeah. this, this mysterious and foreboding atmosphere. But it'd be a very difficult story and character to rescue from the kind of uh, the sexism that's inherent in it without mm-hmm. completely changing that's it. That's so right, that unless she unless she kills Robin or something. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think the original story. Um, in, in the place that it first appeared, I think uh, I I discovered this later. I don't think uh, Seb, um, the version that he did, um, emphasized this. But in the in the original story, actually, um, she she's insistent that she wants to leave in the ah. way that Seb 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 was talk uh, leave her village to look for oh, right. somewhere else to go. Yeah. And Seb says that this is because she is a willful girl, which which is already in, into that narrative of, uh, you know, women should know their place. Right, exactly. Uh, but in the original, it's more than that. In fact, she has friends who have gone away to the city ah. and they write back to her telling her about... Uh, having their own money and going out on dates and right. men they're walking out with and all Ooh. this kind of thing. <laughs> so she wants to go and do the same thing and that's why she's refusing to settle down at home 
Um, so the kind of like overtones of uh, financial and sexual independence yeah. being warned against are perhaps even stronger in yeah. the original text of the term. Yeah, so. and that's that's quite common until very, very recently, really, um, and even even still in many ways, you know, that, that a woman would aspire to earn <laughs> as much money as a man. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have babies then? <laughs> um, yeah. It's and it it can be uncomfortable, really reading or you know um, I can I can only imagine for you guys because it does put you in a predicament um you know um, in in some situations because what what do you do how can can you save quote unquote this character and then what are you what are you saying by by making that kind of judgment call even. I mean that that was kind of the case with um, both uh, King Orfeo mm-hmm. and Greysteel um, also have women in very very traditional roles. Uh, Herodis as the woman who exists primarily to be kidnapped and yep. saved. Uh, the only real change there that that we kind of made was that. Um, you know, the first version I heard from Seb, she she seemed a lot more a fainting lady <laughs> than she did in the final version. And that's you know, that's one basic thing, you know, like if uh, if a woman is going to suffer in these ways, then at least I try uh, when I'm telling a tale, I'll try to make sure that she does so nobly under those circumstances, <laughs> as nobly as she right. can in the situation that she's in. In Greysteel... There's the uh, there's the cold and aloof woman who uh, who wants the the knight to um, go and conquer this enemy and, and spurns him if uh, right <laughs> if he doesn't um, and I guess uh, again the Greysteel is quite a new story as well in the sense that none of us had seen it before and we wanted to sort of tell it almost for the first time right and I think that's another element of storytelling is when you find something that's quite fresh and new and you want to bring it up as a historical artefact, you're less inclined maybe to make as many changes. Mm -hmm. Or making changes would alter the structure of the tale too much. Right. Um, um, Yeah, and there is something to be said for that too because, um, you know, it's something that I deal with in my discipline all the time. Um, so I'm a PhD candidate in English literature. And, uh, you know, um, it, it, people wonder, should we read Huckleberry Finn, for example, mm. you know, um, or how should we read it now? <laughs> you know, l- luckily, you know, we've got, we've had it for almost 200 years now, you know, eh, not quite 160 <laughs> years now. It's 160 years old. Um, I think we're comfortable now with being like, not all of this is good. <laughs> Here are the parts that we need to address. But, you know, when you're first finding something or when, th- you know, you are right, when things are new, when things are fresh, you always run into that problem of, well, we can't erase what happened. And it's even more problematic to pretend that it wasn't like that because then you run the risk of people being like, well, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> slavery (laughs) yeah again his like storytelling and history being kind of adjacent to each other 
when when you when you are storytelling you're always telling in the moment to an audience and so whether or not your audience can connect to a character yeah is important and that's the main reason why um you know you do uh make those changes sometimes because you don't want your audience to be alienated and you yeah. want to be invested in the tales and the characters um I remember my mentor, uh, Graham Langley, when we were talking about uh, something uh, kind of similar. In in a huge many stories, the princess is offered to the hero like a reward. Yeah. Um, And in a lot of the texts or tellings of these tales, as they come down to us, it it doesn't even matter if the woman agrees or not. And so... One one way of massaging these tales so that they yeah. are not so alienating is simply to say, to always make it clear, you know, rather than the king coming along and saying, oh, now you shall have my wife, is, you know, if you want to keep the same structure of the story, you just say, they fell in love with each other. Yeah, right. You know, and <laughs> Smooth that yeah. right over. Yeah. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a really weird one um, where some, a lady gives uh, um, gives her daughter to some frost giants. Oh gosh! And they're like sort of like, well, how does this work? And, <laughs> and Graham said, "Well, no, it's, it's easy. What you do is you put in a part where, and the giant looked at the lady, and there was a gleam in her eye, and she smiled. And <laughs> so you know, you you make them fall in love for the purposes of the tale. So then you end up with a tale that is not so alienating." But you can argue, of course, that doing that mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. Yep. simply finds a way to maintain yep. that yep. patriarchal structure of the tale. Well, it absolutely does, you know, like, because then similarly, you just then don't really question any internal motives for being like, all right, I'll make nice with Frost Giant so I don't don't get eaten. (laughs) I think Princess Jasmine said it best, right? In Aladdin, I am not a prize to be won. Yeah. Grumpy. Um, So then, of course, some, you know, I've heard there are a a lot of storytellers, especially when it comes, like, just as a customary thing at the end of the tale, will simply change it to... um, uh, we'll simply say something like, oh, but they didn't get married um, <laughs> or they went traveling together or, or you right, know, they'll, yeah. they'll change the ending a, li- a little bit like that to kind right. of avoid that problem um, to uh, or to take that element out of the tale. Um, there are cases where you can do a complete... The things where you might majorly change a tale or do something like, um, you know, a gender change or a gender swap that's another thing that you can do and because again it's I, I suppose the more archetypal a tale is the less connected it is to a supposedly local or historical legend mm-hmm. the more comfortable I am about doing that right in the sense of not perhaps going against that kind of idea that you are supposed to be handing down a sort of heritage right. tradition yeah um I wouldn't have a problem with telling a Jack story as a Jill story. Right. Because where does where does Jack come from? He comes from anywhere. Right, anywhere. He lives anywhere. Oh, and it just happened to be right here. <laughs> um, of course, if you're then talking about Jack the Giant Killer, who's supposed to be from 
Arthurian times at a particular moment doing a particular thing, I'd have more of a hesitation doing that. Mm. But some tellers don't. They will yeah. simply just tell tell the story with a different character, with a female character. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, that's interesting. It pre- What I would say is it presents its own problems in a way um not that it's a bad thing i don't think it is to kind of insert these female characters because i mean representation is everything at the end of the day um and so to have female heroes um doing heroic deeds but then you start to lose the specificity of well how would a woman solve this problem you know how would a female character you know would would she swing a sword and, you know, <laughs> chop down the beanstalk and let the giant fall to his death? Maybe. You know, she could. You know, you need to, you know, say, well, a woman could chop down the beanstalk, but would she just outsmart the giant <laughs> instead? <laughs> you know, um, which, again, that kind of brings us full circle. That's kind of the things that I appreciate about Lady Isabella. She's kind of using her femininity or kind of calling the blue knight on these kind of tropic um, stereotypical ideas um, to to best him mm. in the end, you know. Yeah, I, I think the nice thing is that the, the, the more that you do delve into folklore and legend, you know, you do find more surprises with female characters and female narratives than you would expect. Sometimes you find that the Victorianization or Disneyfication of yep. stories has actually robbed some of those characters of um, some agency. Sometimes they had more before yeah. they came along and, and, and did all that kind of stuff to it. Um, and then sometimes there are just like surprises. There's, um, there's a storyteller called Rachel Rose Reed, I think recently did a whole show um, called Silence, which is apparently based on a medieval text about a woman who disguises herself as a man in order to try and inherit her family's estate. Yeah. Can't, can't yes. <laughs> that 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 is an original tale. It's an original text from the medieval period, which uh, I'd certainly never heard of before, um, and I'd love to hear it. Sometimes. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. I mean, um, yeah, you want to talk about like pushing back against stereotypes, and I think you said it the right way. The kind of Victorianification, and even that is a little bit of a misnomer. The Disneyfication very easy for us to stand in our present moment and look back and be like, wow, the past was dumb. The past was so repressive. You know, we are so um, progressive now, you know, we've come so far and it's, it's not always, it's not always totally correct, you know, and that's the bottom line. Um, the Victorians themselves were not covering up table legs because they were too sexy. I'll just <laughs> throw that out there. That is a lie. If you want to look for sex, you will find it in every major novel. It is there. You look for it. Um, they were just they were just uh, clever about it. But um, you know, and that's that's kind of what what you're getting at with this um, medieval tale called Silence. Um, that this is something that even then. 
even in the medieval period, they were conscious of that, that women weren't inheriting old ways or that women might want to, for example, or that women might not be satisfied being wives, mothers, being passed from father to husband in that way that they could have desires and those desires could be financial or, you know, in, independent of, of um, you know, kind of t- typical roles, domestic roles. Hmm. The one you just listened to as well, uh, the warlock. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. I called it the wizard before, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's one that Seb did, and he uh, massively expanded the role of uh, the woman in that one yeah. because in the original, there's not much of a role for May at all. Again, she simply gets kidnapped. I was wondering um, about that. Yeah. So Seb, uh, Seb felt that, especially in a Halloween tale, where you had to have somebody who was threatened and that had yeah. to be the main character. And so he reworked it to be from her perspective rather than... Yeah. Um, I thought that was interesting because she does, um, like, have this really, like, operative function within the plot, too, in that she's the one who kind of passes the note via the cat, which I enjoy, um, <laughs> to let the villagers, I guess, know where they are. Um, although I have have one problem with that, which of course, of course it's probably historically accurate and that's great, but, um, it's pointed out that she cannot read the note that she passes and she just kind of like Mm. does it. And in, in that way, she just kind of this extension of what 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 men want her to do right (laughs) she just so like in tune to what what men want um that she can just do it and just does um and you know i don't know but that's hey that's not fair because that's not here (laughs) not necessarily um and like i said of course there's there's going to be some historical accuracies you know she was if she was a great lady and lived in the palace, she probably would have been able to read. But coming from a village, you know, it's probably not. N- none of the men would have been able to either, most likely. So would they have been rescued? Who knows? <laughs> Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I love to talk. <laughs> You've been listening to Law Talk, part of the Lore and Legend storytelling podcast series. Music in this episode was composed and performed by Robert Benton. If you'd like to hear more discussions about the representation of women in folklore and folk tales, you might want to check out the Feminist Folklore Podcast from Skylark Media. I'd also recommend listening to the episodes Fairy Wives and Fairy Lovers and Loafly Ladies on the Modern Fairies Podcast, published by Oxford University and presented by Caroline Larrington and Faye Heald. On November 14th, you'll be able to hear our next guest episode, where short fiction writer Sarah Pearl shares her unique take on the legend of the last wolf in England. We'll also be releasing our first bonus episode of the podcast, The Legend of Humphrey Head. This episode will be available to download from the Law and Legend website through our Gumroad page. I hope you've enjoyed part three of this edition of Law Talk. Thank you for listening, story folk.